Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We talk today to Alex Molyneux, who's the CEO of Galena Mining. They are an Australian developer focused on lead and a little bit of silver. They are a significantly advanced development stage, um, having completed their DFS and are now looking at awarding uh, EPC uh, contracts and having received 90 million Australian from Toho Zinc. So well-funded, clear, defined project. We talked to Alex about his business model and the state of the market and where they hope to insert themselves. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon, Alex. How are you, sir? Good. Thanks, Matt. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, no worries. So where, where in the world are you? I'm in Taipei City in Taiwan right now. So this is where I'm uh, uh, passing the coronavirus lockdown, I guess. Fantastic. Fantastic. And what's it like over there? Is it sort of, uh, is, it, is everyone, you know, following the rules? Well, it's actually... Um, probably the best country uh to be in because there's there's no community-based infection they've uh they reacted very very early so there's no lockdown you know i i, I uh i went out for lunch today i'm going out for dinner so um yeah it's just uh it's it's managed it extremely well oh mate well i guess i guess the you guys have had you know sars and you know yes incidents before so there was protocol which i guess kind of snapped into action pretty sharpish well that's got great news well i'm, I'm glad you're going to be able to enjoy dinner out tonight yeah. i'll be eating in so uh <laughs> thanks for reminding me right alex um you're a fairly prolific guy well known in the in the industry so i do appreciate you coming on today you're going to talk to us about galena um mining lead zinc um so why don't you kick off give us that one minute overview and we'll take it from there so Galena is a relatively unknown company. It was uh, came to market through IPO on the uh, ASX uh, in September 2019, uh, following the acquisition of the Abra lead silver deposit in the Gascoigne region of Western Australia. So we have some exploration permits, but our core focus is that Abra uh, lead zinc project the company's got a 70 million australian dollar market cap today no debt and that project has really been through the study phase and is moving towards the construction the full construction phase as we are now yeah i mean it looks like there's a lot going on but before we kind of get into that can you give me a sense of you know how did you get involved and what it was that you set out to try to build what's the business plan basically from day one and has that changed yeah, so I got involved um, after I had announced that I was going to finish up at um, Paladin following the restructure of, um, of Paladin. Uh, there was actually quite a long period. I think um, there was like a six-month period that uh, where I'd announced the departure, but it was ongoing. And, and a few people made approaches to me, including the founding shareholders and a couple of directors of Galena and it was an interesting experience because the company uh, had just put out a scoping study and uh, these guys came to me and said there's a base metals project in Western Australia with these kind of investment returns and very low technical risk and I sort of said 
well, hang on a minute, you know, I, I'm really focused on the mining industry. If, if there was something this good, um, I would have heard about it. And I just didn't, you know, the company was new and I had, so, um, you know, they asked me, they sort of said, listen, we're, we're pretty sure this is going to go into the next phase in terms of a much higher phase of study level um, and, you know, go through the permitting phase and the financing phase and, you know, we'd really like to know if, if you're interested to be involved. And, um, uh, yeah, I, t I, I did some due diligence and everything excited me. And I, I uh, ended up agreeing to join in uh, in the middle of uh, two, 2000 and, uh, uh, 2019. Okay, so re relatively new. So so what was the plan that you yeah. bought into? Because I'm always interested in saying, what, what did the company set out to do? What did they think they had? And you know, how things evolve and change because you know mining's tough, markets are tough. You know, how do you kind of keep the the show on the road? Well, um, this deposit, by the way, Abra is not new. I mean, it, it was discovered in in the early '80s, so it's been around for a long time. The uh, these guys had a geological contention. So, so Abra previously had never been brought into a mine because. It was considered a very large but low-grade lead deposit. Um, so there's historical resources like 90, 100 million tonnes at 2, 3, 4% lead. And um, and so it just never st stacked up um, in an economic sense. And so the team here had initially focused on a geological contention, which was um, the old idea was if you if you tried to increase the cutoff grade, uh, the, you know, it wasn't proven that that there would be a contiguous uh, sort of uh, ore body at a higher grade that that had a um, you know that would have good economics for mining. So that was the contention that these guys had in a geological sense, and they were at the stage where they were proving that contention with drilling. So when I joined, uh, there was a, a large drilling campaign had just been undertaken, and uh, they were exactly right. So they were. They were they were they were um, effectively in field drilling an area of the deposit, uh, and they were getting very good grades and thicknesses, and they were able to come up with a resource that uh, had a much higher grade mine plan. So at the time, the concept was uh, when I joined it was uh, if we can have 10 million tons at 10 percent per annum lead, then we'll have blockbuster economics, and um, that was proven in the scoping study. So, uh, but I guess at the time I was joining, um, and I, I joined shortly after another gentleman by the name of Troy Flannery, who um, was at, at the time joined as chief operating officer, very experienced um, mining engineer and, and very experienced as well with um, studies and analysis of pre-development type projects. And so we had this idea that um, 10 by 10 is great, but to have a, a project that's genuinely uh, attractive in the financial, you know, to financiers and, and, and to maximise the value, uh, we, we want to look at a project with a bit longer mine life and whatnot. So we actually ended up um, almost rolling, dialing back the cutoff grade a little bit from the scoping study and we put out a PFS with a 14-year mine life and an average grade of about 8.5% eight lead and it had stellar economics. Yeah, see, that, that, this is the bit that get, really kind of gets me excited here is, look, if I, if I look at your share performance last 
while you know ended 2018 pretty much where you are today so you had a really good year last year was that off the back of people getting excited about silver again or why why do you think last year was so good no i mean uh, 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 silver for us depending on your silver price scenario or whatnot it's um it's less than 10 percent of the revenue in the project so um silver is very nice to have as a balance in the project but it's not you know people aren't buying our stock for silver so exposure what, so what did people think, see what did people see so i think the the, the the real step change that happened for our business last year was uh the investment by toho zinc of japan so um up until the toho investment we were just another junior but before toho invested the market cap was about 30 million dollars and you know we're talking about projects with 160 170 million dollars worth of capex spend and everyone sits there and says i like the project but the risk of how you're going to finance it is why i can't buy the stock so toho uh, we ran a process in late 2018 to see um what finance what I mean, we approached everybody. We had 15 different people in a data room. We were talking to people about, um, you know, PE-style investments, all kinds of different things. And Toho emerged from that process as a customer um, saying we would like to invest. And we ended up doing a deal with them to invest uh, 90 million Australian dollars for a 40% stake in the project. So it valued the project very highly and it also gave us the equity that we need to build the thing right and so we're going to bounce around here because there's there's, there's quite a few moving parts that you've managed to put together yeah. but um, let's start with the first thing is so, so what were you brought in to do so if they knew what they knew about the project are you were you brought in to be able to introduce finance that's my i guess main sweet spot but it's not just about um, I guess, you know, my role's not to just sort of come in and go pick, pick the pieces up and say, great, you know, I have a lot, of, a lot of connections in the industry. I think I know who might be interested to finance this. It's also about uh, making sure that you're involved in the technical preparation and, in fact, the project design phase to be able to create a project that is going to be supported by the financing market. So um, I think a lot of people don't understand that and in fact you know it's tempting for for people in the industry to say okay i'm going to design the project to maximize theoretical mpv but um what they don't understand is your cost of capital is actually variable right and it depends on whether the project is going to appeal to debt financiers or uh, be solely equity finance or whatnot so you have to have this mindset coming into the project design phase. So I think, you know, I, I guess my skill set as applies to Galena is not just about, um, not just about uh, connecting the company with finance. It's also about creating a project in its design sense and also in the quality of the data. I mean, there's a quality of work you have to get to that you know that you can have people come through a due diligence process and make you know uh, executable offers in the end and that's that's another thing where i think a lot of projects uh miss out because companies are starved of cap capital so they, they cut corners on the work and then 
uh, they they failed to get additional capital. So this is this is a really interesting conversation. I, I come from the finance side. Okay, I, I would be looking at companies and trying to work yep. out what I did and didn't like. You know, uh, green green flags and uh, red lights. Um, but there's a little bit of what you're saying there that says to me actually the money. Uh, drives the way that you design the project. So, you know, a lot of miners do it, as you said, here's the way we do it. We'll work out what we've got theoretically and uh, now who wants it. And you're saying, well, actually, we've got to follow the money, understand what they want or or the best way that I can, Alex can, present this information to be able to extract that money from the different types of money sources out there. So you've got to have an idea in your head, don't you, before you start work what you think you need to build. And do you do that from having had conversations or just experience as to what you think will get over the line? Well, so, so the first thing I'd say is, so it's it's not the driver, okay? okay. You've got, you know, your, your technical framework is still driving the, the bulk of what you're moving forward to, but it's a constituency in terms of, that, that you have to understand when you are making decisions in the, uh, sort of in the pre-development and, and, and study phase. So I'm not saying it's the key driver, but it's a constituency, and it's a constituency I think that's often ignored. So and, and it, so um, that is uh, a point here where, where uh, now, now in terms of visit experience, it, it's a mixture of, um, you know, I, I, have a, I have a lot of experience financing projects, so, you know, I've had... Um, let's say trial and error type experience and I know what works and what doesn't work with different groups of financiers and whatnot. Um, so, so that's part of it. But also, as you say, um, it's also an ongoing process of, you know, we um, like the first thing we did after the PFS, as I said, was we, we ran this active process. Now, um, we picked an equity partner from that process, but we also had uh, other parties in that that um, will be, could be providers of debt in the next stage and whatnot. And we were getting early feedback from those parties um, as to what their sweet spots were with respect to this project and what we had to do to uh, move it to the next level for them. Right, okay. So, and you've got you, as a result, you've got a lot of cash in the bank at the moment. So you've got some options. Um, can you talk to me about the economics of the pro- and we will talk about the the assets and the, the projects and the projects themselves but I, I want to talk about the money side of things first so you've got some cash in the bank roughly what is it these days well as at December 31 it's 27.5 million Australian dollars and uh, and no debt right and you you're burning month on a monthly basis roughly what uh, well right now we're doing a, a series of discrete tasks basically to uh, de-risk the first phase of the project so it, it's it's all of the site preparation we're also mining the box cut and whatnot so there's a spin going on that's not a not an ongoing spin put it that way so the ongoing spin the, the, the burn if you like other than those discrete tasks is about 400 grand a month but um, you know we're spending about ten million dollars at the moment on uh, on a series of tasks that will be complete uh, uh, around May. Okay, so that gives us a sense of how much cash there is and you know w- what the runway looks like, um, yeah. w- w- which is great. So between so between now and that point, um, you've got a number of other deliverables. Um, I mean, you, you, I mean, looking at your PowerPoint, I mean, you, you've done a lot of the 
the work here. Um, how much? What more have you got to do before you can get into production? Yeah, the the project you could say is um, approximately ten percent complete as we as we stand here today. Almost ten percent complete. It's probably around nine percent um, now. Uh, that's that that means you know we have so so what we what we have now really is a site that's ready for an EPC contractor to be able to mobilize to mm -hmm. and an underground mining contractor to be able to mobilize to other than some other infrastructure like construction of the tailing storage facility um, that is those are the main tasks that drive to production of first concentrate. Now we've awarded the EPC contract, so we know who that's going to be. That's going to be GR Engineering Services. There is a price for that, seventy-four million Australian dollars. Um, the legal terms and whatnot are all sorted out, uh, and that contract is waiting there for us to uh, start the procurement and construction phase. The m underground mining contract we have selected a pr preferred um, tenderer, and we're very close to being able to uh, actually enter into that contract. So what's missing here is the debt financing piece. So uh, we'll be running a debt financing process and we need to close that. And literally the day we close that, the EPC and the mining contract sort of swing in, everything else ready to go. There's no, all, it's all permitted. It's, you know, so we, those two contracts start to perform and then you know um, you know, what your timeline is to produce first concentrate. Okay. What's the price of lead per pound these days? Uh, in a per pound uh, sense, it's 70 cents US per pound. Right. Okay. And what's that doing to the economics of your project at the moment? Um, so it's, when we look at the economics of the project, it's not having, it's, you know, what's been great about this coronavirus period is the economics have been quite robust through it. So uh, we did the DFS in July of 2019 using a 92 US cent lead price and the Australian dollar was 70 cents at the time. So that comes out to um, $1.30 Australian, right? Mm -hmm. Now, today's uh, lead price in Australian dollar terms is uh, is $1.26. So, you know, your revenue is about 3% lower. Uh, by the way, we, you know, we bought back a one point one to five percent royalty in that intervening time as well and also most of the capex is denominated in a dollar terms as well so if you kind of get your mind around this us dollar denominated revenue so when we look at the the economics for the project it's not it's that it's not materially adverse you know the 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 cash flow margin is reduced from uh, 48% to uh, 41%. So, okay. you know, extremely robust cash flows. Right. And, and so that doesn't affect any of the terms of the uh, Toho uh, Zinc uh, agreement, does it? No. So they have, um, you know, the, the, so, 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 so Toho's $90 million investment, they've already put $30 million in. Uh, they have a $60 million tranche to go. And the, the only condition for that is that we put in place the project financing debt Okay, so it's it's not conditional on price in the market or uh, effects of anything else that may be affecting the company at the moment. Okay, and what's the timing on that? On the debt? Yeah, well, that's the that, that's the open question at the moment. 
um, that, that, that's the key thing that sort of keeps me uh, awake at night, if anything does. Um, you know, we, we've run this debt process that's taken a little bit of time. One of the things that's taken some time on the debt process is when we did our DFS, uh, we were still doing a very active drilling campaign at that time. We had another 18,000 metres of, of drilling happening at the time. And uh, the drilling was complete subsequent to the DFS. So we updated the models and the whole thing. So the, 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 the main swing of the bank financing process didn't really take place until late 2019. And then going through that whole process and whatnot uh, has put us into a position where um you know it's a little bit we're starting it's starting to slow down because of coronavirus issues there's there's a mix of things in that in that the banks are moving slowly right now they've, they've slowed down quite a bit um you know i think primarily because of market volatility um and they're just waiting for that to settle down i think that, I, I think in general that the debt providers are pretty comfortable with the way, as, as we've talked about before, that the project cash flows have been robust through this crisis. Um, but, you know, the banks seem to have their own issues and distractions and the kind of teams that you're dealing with, for example, uh, are dealing with other clients who um, have got issues with their covenants or are, you know, there's, 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 there's timely issues that I have to deal with. That's one thing. There's other issues... Uh, associated with simple logistics, like um, if 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 bank expert X or Y needs to come and see something on site, uh, and is based in New South Wales, we can't get them to uh, Western Australia right now. So um, you know, but but from our perspective, we have everything ready to go. Um, we we continue to have engagement from the banks and non-bank debt providers, by the way. So so. We know that that that's hanging out there, and we just have to kind of and, and you know we've got a funding situation that doesn't cause any issues for us. So so we're you know we've got some time here. So we just have to um, take our uh, you know just 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 take take what what what's what's happening. And I, I think that you know we're, we're in very very good shape to to just wait until things calm down and and close the financing. Okay, so just coming back to the point you made earlier with regards to structuring or changing things around um, from the mining perspective, to be able to have better conversations with, like, say, debt providers or, or, or other finance uh, as well. Um, do you think that you, I mean, things like, you know, extending the life of mine. Okay, I, I, I totally get that. That would, that would, that would take one of my boxes. Um, but at, given the cautious nature of debt finance, they it's always the longest pole in the tent when you're trying to trying to get it done because they're a little bit more cautious and they need to work out how they perfect security and a long list of things that they need. Do you think that you could have done this better? Do you think that you went a bit early? Do you think you went too much with the money that you raised with Tahoe Sink? Or is it a case of I need to get to keep this thing on the road? Um, and I've done a pretty good deal. I mean, I hear you, you bought your royalty back. So you're thinking about these things, but talk me through the thought process as you went through there to be able to negotiate a better deal um, when it comes to the debt. Well, firstly, I think, I, I, I think that the Toho deal 
uh, created a lot of value for us. Um, so not only were they was the valuation uh, a, a, a very high premium in comparison to um, uh, to, to the, the market value at the time, but the way it works with the thirty million of tranches we 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 had up front enabled us to undertake works on the project that that significantly de-risked it. That massive uh, drilling program that we were doing that I was telling you about that was happening sort of was completed after the DFS, you know, that cost in the region of $5 million, right? So, uh, you know, uh, that came from Toho's money. Um, the being able to de-risk the site by doing all these site works is very, very important. We've been able to... Um, what one of the one of the areas where people often slip up is um, on having a site that your plant EPC contractor can mobilise to without risk because if they're delayed in mobilising, that's that's a cost that that starts to get out of control pretty quickly, and it's not something you have recourse back to the EPC contractor on because in a way it's your fault. So. You either add these works into the EPC contract and then pay the EPC margin on top of them and they cost a lot more, or you take the risk yourself. So by, by doing those works now, we've been able to do them ourselves, but without the pressure of potentially tripping up and causing wider issues with the project. Now, in terms of the funding, uh, you know, when I look at my cash burn, other than those discrete items, so we've not committed to anything that's beyond those specific discrete items. So, you know, if it, if I can sit here for another two years, if that's how long it takes me to get the debt. Now, uh, that's not my belief, by the way. I think uh, uh, I think what I know from the process we've run is that debt is available for this project and we're very close to getting it and we just need the market to calm down a bit. But, um, you know, we're not in a situation where we have any kind of, uh, where we've bitten off more than we can chew in a financing sense. That's one thing I think that we're, one of our philosophies as Kalina is to be pretty careful with this stuff. So, um, yeah, I think I think that's, we, we our point here is we raised, a big chunk of money first and then spent a prudent amount of that de-risking the project and locking away um, the cost of those items, right? So I know that there's not going to be a cost blowout on a chunk of my construction items because I've already done it. So, um, you know, those things I think have, have been a really good use of that of that money and we're sitting in a, in, in, in a, in a good position now. Yeah, I think I think I'd agree with that. Like, I don't necessarily think there's a right or a wrong answer, but some companies want to get the cash up front, give them give them the ability to kind of get on with it, take the cash when you can. As a well trodden phrase in banking, okay. so it certainly was when I was banking. Um, and others believe that they'll just raise small amounts of money. They don't want to have the appearance of diluting shareholder value, but at the same time, they're losing the opportunity to create shareholder value. So it's an interesting debate and a conundrum and I wouldn't be a CEO of a mining company for love and money but um, <laughs> how many what's your kind of share register look like in terms of retail institutional insiders management etc so our largest shareholder um, our largest shareholding is 19.6% uh, of the company which is uh, beneficially owned by a gentleman by the name of Tim Roberts he's a um, 
sort of a high net worth, uh, very well known sort of brand name investor in Australia and um, has uh, came in through a placement and uh, has made additional purchases of shares in the secondary market subsequently. So he's our largest shareholder. Board and management combined have 25, uh, or just under 25%. Um, and then I'd say the institutional, sometimes it's a bit hard to see your institutional shareholding because of nominee holdings and things like that. But um, based on a look through, it, the institutional shareholding is probably around uh, an additional 20, 25%, and then the rest is retail. So we actually, um, we're very light retail investment. That we only, in total, we have around 900 shareholders. And I think the main issue, one of the main issues for us is that because um, people like Sandfire Resources with their DeGrasse mine or Cirrus with back in the day with their Nova Bollinger mine, which are very similar mines to ours, base metals with similar economic returns. They've been public for a lot longer, sort of went through the exploration discovery phase as a public company, so generated a lot of excitement. They had sort of thousands of shareholders at the point at which they were coming into construction. So um, we probably... I still find that not that many people are aware of the company. So, so you know, I, I, I think we'd like to build up more of a following. We're not unhappy because we've been able to get our funding and keep moving and we think life will take care of itself eventually. But I do think it's, in a way, it's a missed opportunity for some if they can't participate. But um, No, I'd agree with that because I wasn't sure when we were doing the research whether this was an, meant to be an institutional story because obviously some big names in there on the register that we found um, yep. Not a lot of chat about you guys from from the retail, um, and, you know, possibly for the reasons you've just just outlined. But your hope or your aspire to maybe to bring more retail into the following. Well, you know, the one thing I think is there's, there's a symbiotic relationship between retail and, and institutions. Mm. Our co our company is well liked by institutions, and we have. A quite a, a good representation in terms of the number of good quality institutions we have on the register. But when I look at their ownership positions, they actually sort of own a little bit less than they might otherwise be able to own. And the biggest issue they have is liquidity, right? So if we can build liquidity in the stock, then the instos will buy more. So um, uh, that I know from my discussions and, and uh, with the Insto holders here. So that's why I think for us, and I think um, retail investors also should, should understand their role in that too. It's really important. We want retail investors in well, They're as important to us as large institutional investors because of the way the interaction in the market. Okay. No, I, I, I absolutely agree with that 100%. Um, I think it's the downfall of a lot of Lot of companies, uh, especially when they've got a, you know a couple, one or a couple of big shareholders, the liquidity just isn't there, no matter what you do. Um, yeah. Can you do me a favour? Lead, not really that loved. It's a kind of unknown. It's not that sexy. Uh, no reflection. Yeah. Um, but uh, could you give us a little bit of a background of the lead market in terms of where it is today and maybe futures? I know it's again, it's another commodity that's putting up its uh, battery battery uh, uh, you know revolution credentials so 
Give us your view. Yeah, I mean, um, lead's a, a, a battery metal. Uh, it's it's an LME screen traded base metal, so it's it's a it's a, it's, it's a liquid investable metal in that in, in that regard. It's probably had one of the a, a liquid market for, for for almost a longer period than most metals. It's been it's been used in all kinds of applications for more than a hundred years. Um, its main use today is as a battery metal, and primarily in lead acid batteries so when we look at the lead acid battery market roughly 85 so 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 85 percent of lead's use is going into automotive and then the rest of it is into stationary applications or small so um so just dealing with the the smaller market stationary applications that's actually growing very well right now but it's things like for example um mobile phone towers use lead acid battery to make sure that their power supply is going to be uninterrupted and whatnot. So things like 5G rollout, uh, we will have a high demand for lead because of um, the, the higher power usage of a 5G tower versus a 4G. But coming back to that main use of automotive, when we, when we look at that automotive market, we say 85% of lead is automotive. The numbers vary from time to time, but roughly half of that is people replacing the lead acid batteries in their cars and uh, or just over half and just under half is the original equipment market, i.e. new cars, right? Now, lead, by the way, is a battery metal, um, differentiates itself from something like lithium, for example, in this key way. Um, lead is a lead battery per unit of charge is about four times heavier than a, a lithium ion battery, but it's one tenth the price. Okay. So when you look at, when we look at the future here, the biggest question I get about lead is, well, hang on a minute. Like uh, what about electric cars? Well, the, the lead acid battery is not going to be the propulsion battery because if you want a 50 kilowatt, to 100 kilowatt battery, it'd just be too heavy. The performance of the car wouldn't meet the consumer's requirements. But every electric car still has a lead acid battery, right? So in in your internal combustion engine car, that lead acid battery is running uh, the safety systems. Uh, particularly a lot of cars have electric braking, for example, your hazard lights, your headlights, uh, your windscreen wipers, and it's also running the stop the the, the, the ignition of, of the engine. Right now, all of those backup features are still required in an electric car for the same reason that if you run out of petrol coming down the hill and you want to be able to apply the brakes and, and switch the hazard lights on, that's that, that's the same case if you run out of power in your lithium ion battery. Now. What it doesn't have is the ignition function. It doesn't have that in, in, the, um, in, in, in the electric car. But it takes on a new function, which is that in general, the battery, battery management computer is running on the lead acid battery. Now, the battery management computer, but when you switch off an electric car, it doesn't switch off like an internal combustion engine car. This computer system's running the whole time and monitoring the state of the lithium-ion battery and, it, and also when you're charging it and whatnot. Now, it's making sure that uh, it's monitoring things for like uh, 
um, you know, if it's if if if, if the if the lithium ion battery is overheating and things like that, and it's it's managing those issues. Now, it has to have a cycle time that's different to the lithium ion battery, and it has to have a wider operating range, right? So if you if you're in Mongolia and it's minus sixty degrees, and your your lithium ion battery is just sort of ceased to be responsive, um, then your lead acid battery is still going to be there. Going, yep, yep, okay, everything's okay, right? Now. So um, in a electric car, the lead acid battery is roughly 10% smaller. So uh, there, there is a little bit less lead that's being used, but it's, it's there. Open, the, bo- open the, the frunk of a Tesla, you'll see one, and, and, and it's in every electric model. So it's not been replaced. Now, when we, when, we, when we look forward, though, what I will say about lead is it's different to the stories of lithium and all these others. We're not talking about a growth story. We don't sit out there and, uh, and talk about a massive growth story. The lead market is growing at about 2% per year. So, you know, if you ask Wood McKenzie, uh, the, the, the primary expert on the, on the market, they've got that kind of forecast going forward till 2035. They're taking into account the transition to electric cars. They're taking into account things like 5G um, mobile towers and stationary uses. What the thing with lead is, there's not a great availability of supply. And most lead is produced as a byproduct to zinc. And the zinc industry, the lead byproduct grade has just been declining over the last few years. And when you look at the inventory of new projects for zinc, on average, it has a lower lead byproduct grade than history, right? So you're just seeing that less, there's just less, you know, primary, production of lead is being driven by people's interest to bring on production of zinc but um, there's just less and less of that lead going forward there's another thing going on in the market that suits us specifically which is a lot of the new sources of lead have are dirtier so they've got issues with things like arsenic or cadmium in their concentrates whereas we've got a very clean concentrate so there's a, a definite room in the market for our concentrate. Fantastic. Look, um, Alex, I appreciate you running through that. Um, and I wanted to speak to you to get to know you, uh, get a sense of you know what you're yeah. about. But and, and I do thank you for running through how you've gone about the eco- understanding the economics and the, and the financing as well. So, but maybe it'd be great to have you on, um, you know, when, well, if you, if you be kind enough to come back on and tell us a little bit more about the project and get into the detail of that. And I'm not sure we've got time to do that today. Yeah. But um, so like I say, thanks, thanks very much. And um, stay, no stay, yeah. enjoy your dinner tonight. And we'll speak to you soon. <laughs> okay, I appreciate it, Matt. Thanks very much. Okay. I, uh, I appreciate it. Thanks for the Cheers. time. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.